and now the 2015 opinion of the Supreme Court in Obergefell v. Hodges. Justice Kennedy delivered the opinion of the court. The Constitution promises liberty to all within its reach, a liberty that includes certain specific rights that allow persons within a lawful realm to define and express their identity. The petitioners in these cases seek to find that liberty by marrying someone of the same sex and having their marriages deemed lawful on the same terms and conditions as marriages between persons of the opposite sex. Part 1. These cases come from Michigan, Kentucky, Ohio, and Tennessee, states that define marriage as a union between one man and one woman. The petitioners are 14 same-sex couples and two men whose same-sex partners are deceased. The respondents are state officials responsible for enforcing the laws in question. The petitioners claim the respondents violate the 14th Amendment by denying them the right to marry or to have their marriages lawfully performed in another state, given full recognition. Petitioners filed these suits in United States district courts in their home states. Each district court ruled in their favor. The respondents appealed the decisions against them to the United States Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit. It consolidated the cases and reversed the judgments of the district courts. The Court of Appeals held that a state has no constitutional obligation to license same-sex marriages or to recognize same-sex marriages performed out of the state. The petitioners sought certiorari. This court granted review limited to two questions. The first, presented by the cases from Michigan and Kentucky, is whether the 14th Amendment requires a state to license a marriage between two people of the same sex. The second, presented by the cases from Ohio, Tennessee, and again, Kentucky, is whether the 14th Amendment requires a state to recognize a same-sex marriage licensed and performed in a state that does grant that right. Part 2 Before addressing the principles and precedents that govern these cases, it is appropriate to note the history of the subject now before the court. Section A From their beginning to their most recent page, the annals of human history reveal the transcendent importance of marriage. The lifelong union of a man and a woman always has promised nobility and dignity to all persons without regard to their station in life. Marriage is sacred to those who live by their religions and offers unique fulfillment to those who find meaning in the secular realm. Its dynamic allows two people to find a life that could not be found alone, for a marriage becomes greater than just the two persons. Rising from the most basic human needs, marriage is essential to our most profound hopes and aspirations. The centrality of marriage to the human condition makes it unsurprising that the institution has existed for millennia and across civilizations. Since the dawn of history, marriage has transformed strangers 
into relatives, binding families and societies together. Confucius taught that marriage lies at the foundation of government. This wisdom was echoed centuries later and a half a world away by Cicero, who wrote, The first bond of society is marriage, next children, and then the family. There are untold references to the beauty of marriage in religious and philosophical texts spanning time, cultures, and faiths, as well as in art and literature in all their forms. It is fair and necessary to say these references were based on the understanding that marriage is a union between two persons of the opposite sex. That history is the beginning of these cases. The respondents say it should be the end as well. To them, it would demean a timeless institution if the concept and lawful status of marriage were extended to two persons of the same sex. Marriage, in their view, is by its nature a gender-differentiated union of man and woman. This view long has been held, and continues to be held, in good faith by reasonable and sincere people here and throughout the world. The petitioners acknowledge this history but contend that these cases cannot end there. Were their intent to demean the revered idea and reality of marriage, the petitioners' claims would be of a different order. But that is neither their purpose nor their submission. To the contrary, it is the enduring importance of marriage that underlies the petitioners' contentions. This, they say, is their whole point. Far from seeking to devalue marriage, the petitioners seek it for themselves because of their respect and need for its privileges and responsibilities. And their immutable nature dictates that same-sex marriage is their only real path to this profound commitment. Recounting the circumstances of three of these cases illustrates the urgency of the petitioner's cause from their perspective. Petitioner James Obergefell, a plaintiff in the Ohio case, met John Arthur over two decades ago. They fell in love and started a life together, establishing a lasting, committed relation. In 2011, however, Arthur was diagnosed with amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or ALS. This debilitating disease is progressive, with no known cure. Two years ago, Obergefell and Arthur decided to commit to one another, resolving to marry before Arthur died. To fulfill their mutual promise, they traveled from Ohio to Maryland, where same-sex marriage was legal. It was difficult for Arthur to move, and so the couple were wed inside a medical transport plane as it remained on the tarmac in Baltimore. Three months later, Arthur died. Ohio law does not permit Obergefell to be listed as the surviving spouse on Arthur's death certificate. By statute, they must remain strangers even in death. A state-imposed separation, Obergefell deems hurtful for the rest of time. He brought suit to be shown as the surviving spouse on Arthur's death certificate. 
April DeBoer and Jane Rouse are co-plaintiffs in the case from Michigan. They celebrated a commitment ceremony to honor their permanent relation in 2007. They both work as nurses, DeBoer in a neonatal unit and Rouse in an emergency unit. In 2009, DeBoer and Rouse fostered and then adopted a baby boy. Later that same year, they welcomed another son into their family. The new baby, born prematurely and abandoned by his biological mother, required around-the-clock care. The next year, a baby girl with special needs joined their family. Michigan, however, permits only opposite-sex married couples or single individuals to adopt, so each child can have only one woman as his or her legal parent. If an emergency were to arise, schools and hospitals may treat the three children as if they had only one parent. And were tragedy to befall either DeBoer or Rouse, the other would have no legal rights over the children she had not been permitted to adopt. This couple seeks relief from the continuing uncertainty their unmarried status creates in their lives. Army Reserve Sergeant First Class Ipe Deku and his partner Thomas Castora, co-plaintiffs in the Tennessee case, fell in love. In 2011, Deku received orders to deploy to Afghanistan. Before leaving, he and Costora married in New York. A week later, Deku began his deployment, which lasted for almost a year. When he returned, the two settled in Tennessee, where Deku works full-time for the Army Reserve. Their lawful marriage is stripped from them whenever they reside in Tennessee, returning and disappearing as they travel across state lines. Deku, who served this nation to preserve the freedom the Constitution protects, must endure a substantial burden. The cases now before the court involve other petitioners as well, each with their own experiences. Their stories reveal that they seek not to denigrate marriage, but rather to live their lives or honor their spouse's memory, joined by its bond. Section B. The ancient origins of marriage confirm its centrality but it has not stood in isolation from developments in law and society. The history of marriage is one of both continuity and change. That institution, even as confined to opposite-sex relations, has evolved over time. For example, marriage was once viewed as an arrangement by the couple's parents based on political, religious, and financial concerns. But by the time of the nation's founding, it was understood to be a voluntary contract between a man and a woman. As the role and status of women changed, the institution further evolved. Under the centuries-old doctrine of coverture, a married man and woman were treated by the state as a single male-dominated legal entity. As women gained legal, political, and property rights, and as society began to understand that women have their own equal dignity, the law of coverture was abandoned. These and other developments in the institution of marriage over the past centuries 
were not mere superficial changes. Rather, they worked deep transformations in its structure, affecting aspects of marriage long viewed by many as essential. These new insights have strengthened, not weakened, the institution of marriage. Indeed, changed understandings of marriage are characteristics of a nation where new dimensions of freedom become apparent to new generations, often through perspectives that begin in pleas or protests and then are considered in the political sphere and the judicial process. This dynamic can be seen in the nation's experiences with the rights of gays and lesbians. Until the mid-20th century, same-sex intimacy long had been condemned as immoral by the state itself in most Western nations, a belief often embodied in the criminal law. For this reason, among others, many persons did not deem homosexuals to have dignity in their own distinct identity. A truthful declaration by same-sex couples of what was in their hearts had to remain unspoken. Even when a greater awareness of the humanity and integrity of homosexual persons came in the period after World War II, the argument that gays and lesbians had a just claim to dignity was in conflict with both law and widespread social conventions. Same-sex intimacy remained a crime in many states. Gays and lesbians were prohibited from most government employment, barred from military service, excluded under immigration laws, targeted by police, and burdened in their rights to associate. For much of the 20th century, moreover, homosexuality was treated as an illness. When the American Psychiatric Association published the first Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders in 1952, homosexuality was classified as a mental disorder, a position adhered to until 1973. Only in more recent years have psychiatrists and others recognized that sexual orientation is both a normal expression of human sexuality and immutable. In the late 20th century, following substantial cultural and political developments, same-sex couples began to lead more open and public lives and to establish families. This development was followed by a quite extensive discussion of the issue in both governmental and private sectors, and by a shift in public attitudes toward greater tolerance. As a result, questions about the rights of gays and lesbians soon reached the courts, where the issue could be discussed in the formal discourse of the law. This court first gave detailed consideration to the legal status of homosexuals in Bowers v. Hardwick, 1986. There, it upheld the constitutionality of a Georgia law deemed to criminalize certain homosexual acts. Ten years later, in Romer v. Evans, the court invalidated an amendment to Colorado's constitution that sought to foreclose any branch or political subdivision of the state from protecting persons against discrimination based on sexual orientation. 
Then, in 2003, the court overruled Bowers, holding that laws making same-sex intimacy a crime demeaned the lives of homosexual persons. Against this background, the legal question of same-sex marriage arose. In 1993, the Hawaii Supreme Court held Hawaii's law restricting marriage to opposite-sex couples constituted a classification on the basis of sex and was therefore subject to strict scrutiny under the Hawaii Constitution. Although this decision did not mandate that same-sex marriage be allowed, some states were concerned by its implications and reaffirmed in their laws that marriage is defined as a union between opposite-sex partners. So too, in 1996, Congress passed the Defense of Marriage Act, defining marriage for all federal law purposes as only a legal union between one man and one woman as husband and wife. The new and widespread discussion of the subject led other states to a different conclusion. In 2003, the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts held the state's constitution guaranteed same-sex couples the right to marry. After that ruling, some additional states granted marriage rights to same-sex couples, either through judicial or legislative processes. These decisions and statutes are cited in Appendix B. Two terms ago, in United States v. Windsor, this court invalidated DOMA to the extent it barred the federal government from treating same-sex marriages as valid, even when they were lawful in the state where they were licensed. DOMA, the Defense of Marriage Act, the court held, impermissibly disparaged those same-sex couples who wanted to affirm their commitment to one another before their children, their family, their friends, and their community. Numerous cases about same-sex marriage have reached the United States Courts of Appeals in recent years. In accordance with the judicial duty to base their decisions on principled reasons and neutral discussions without scornful or disparaging commentary, courts have written a substantial body of law considering all sides of these issues. That case law helps to explain and formulate the underlying principles this court now must consider. With the exception of the option here under review, and one other, the courts of appeals have held that excluding same-sex couples from marriage violates the Constitution. There have also been many thoughtful district court decisions addressing same-sex marriage, and most of them, too, have concluded same-sex couples must be allowed to marry. After years of litigation, legislation, referenda, and the discussions that attended these public acts, the states are now divided on the issue of same-sex marriage. Part 3 Under the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment, no state shall deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. 
The fundamental liberties protected by this clause include most of the rights enumerated in the Bill of Rights. In addition, these liberties extend to certain personal choices central to individual dignity and autonomy, including intimate choices that define personal identity and beliefs. The identification and protection of fundamental rights is an enduring part of the judicial duty to interpret the Constitution. That responsibility, however, has not been reduced to any formula. Rather, it requires courts to exercise reasoned judgment in identifying interests of the person so fundamental that the state must accord them its respect. That process is guided by many of the same considerations relevant to analysis of other constitutional provisions that set forth broad principles rather than specific requirements. History and tradition guide and discipline this inquiry, but do not set its outer boundaries. That method respects our history and learns from it without allowing the past alone to rule the present. The nature of injustice is that we may not always see it in our own times. The generations that wrote and ratified the Bill of Rights and the 14th Amendment did not presume to know the extent of freedom in all of its dimensions, and so they entrusted to future generations a charter protecting the right of all persons to enjoy liberty as we learn its meaning. When new insight reveals discord between the Constitution's central protections and a received legal stricture, a claim to liberty must be addressed. Applying these established tenets, the court has long held the right to marry is protected by the Constitution. In Loving v. Virginia, 1967, which invalidated bans on interracial unions, a unanimous court held marriage is one of the vital personal rights essential to the orderly pursuit of happiness by free men. The court reaffirmed that holding in Zablocki v. Redhale, 1978, which held the right to marry was burdened by a law prohibiting fathers who were behind on child support from marrying. The court again applied this principle in Turner v. Safley. 1987, which held the right to marry was abridged by regulations limiting the privilege of prison inmates to marry. Over time and in other contexts, the court has reiterated that the right to marry is fundamental under the Due Process Clause. It cannot be denied that this court's cases describing the right to marry presumed a relationship involving opposite-sex partners. The court, like many institutions, has made assumptions defined by the world and time of which it is a part. This was evident in Baker v. Nelson, a one-line summary decision issued in 1972 holding the exclusion of same-sex couples from marriage did not present a substantial federal question. Still, 
there are other more instructive precedents. This court's cases have expressed constitutional principles of broader reach. In defining the right to marry, these cases have identified essential attributes of that right based in history, tradition, and other constitutional liberties inherent in this intimate bond. And in assessing whether the force and rationale of its cases apply to same-sex couples, the court must respect the basic reasons why the right to marry has been long protected. This analysis compels the conclusion that same-sex couples may exercise the right to marry. The four principles and traditions to be discussed demonstrate that the reasons marriage is fundamental under the Constitution apply with equal force to same-sex couples. A first premise of the court's relevant precedents is that the right to personal choice regarding marriage is inherent in the concept of individual autonomy. This abiding connection between marriage and liberty is why loving invalidated interracial marriage bans under the Due Process Clause. Like choices concerning contraception, family relationships, procreation, and child-rearing, all of which are protected by the Constitution, decisions concerning marriage are among the most intimate that an individual can make. Indeed, the court has noted it would be contradictory to recognize a right of privacy with respect to other matters of family life and not with respect to the decision to enter the relationship that is the foundation of the family in our society. Choices about marriage shape an individual's destiny. As the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts has explained, because it fulfills yearnings for security, safe haven, and connection that express our common humanity, civil marriage is an esteemed institution, and the decision whether and whom to marry is among life's momentous acts of self-definition. The nature of marriage is that, through its enduring bond, two persons together can find other freedoms, such as expression, intimacy, and spirituality. This is true for all persons, whatever their sexual orientation. There is dignity in the bond between two men or two women who seek to marry and in their autonomy to make such profound choices. A second principle in this court's jurisprudence is that the right to marry is fundamental because it supports a two-person union unlike any other in its importance to the committed individuals. This point was central to Griswold v. Connecticut, which held the Constitution protects the right of married couples to use contraception, suggesting that marriage is a right older than the Bill of Rights. Griswold described marriage in this way, quote, Marriage is a coming together for better or for worse, hopefully enduring and intimate to the degree of being sacred. It is an association that promotes a way of life, not causes, a harmony in living, not political faiths. 
a bilateral loyalty, not commercial or social projects. Yet, it is an association for as noble a purpose as any involved in our prior decisions. Unquote. And in Turner, the court again acknowledged the intimate association protected by this right, holding prisoners could not be denied the right to marry because their committed relationships satisfied the basic reasons why marriage is a fundamental right. The right to marry thus dignifies couples who wish to define themselves by their commitment to each other. Marriage responds to the universal fear that a lonely person might call out only to find no one there. It offers the hope of companionship and understanding and assurance that while both still live, there will be someone to care for the other. We've finished the first half of this opinion, but don't worry, the next episode will pick up exactly where this episode ended. Until next time, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.